where the Lord, I think, led me this morning was to, to pick up where I left off the last time. This may be the second to the last time that I had the opportunity to preach. And that was in uh, Peter's letter, his second letter. And there'll be some uh, review, I hope not too much, for anybody that remembers that last message. But uh, this, this uh, second letter of Peter has been so impactful in my life, so encouraging, so strengthening. And when you think of Peter, we can't help but think of what? His denial. His denial. His failure. And I wanted to touch on it a little bit, just, just to see if it would sink in a bit. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me or just listen along. But it begins in Matthew 26, verse 30. It says, and of course this is uh, the evening when Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested. And Jesus is with his disciples And it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never, never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter, correcting the Lord, said again, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Well, it goes on in verse 69 with an accounting of the next events. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he had denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. He knew he was a Galilean. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. 
I can't help but think Peter so hoped that story would go away. <laughs> and yet it's recorded and recorded and recorded for him. But there was restoration, wasn't there? John 21, verses 15. You know the story. This is after the resurrection. Jesus meets the disciples on the beach. Breakfast is laid out. And it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Peter was restored and set with a calling. He knows what it is to stumble, though. Peter knows what it is to stumble, to be unsteady in his faith to fail. Jumping back into Luke, there is another promise that Jesus gave to Peter that I think is worth remembering. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It is going to fail. But when you have turned again, when you have repented, strengthen your brothers. Glory to God, Peter finished well. And his intention is in this letter is that we would be strengthened and that we would finish well. And if you remember from the beginning of this text in 2 Peter, he says some profound things, some amazing things. Right off the bat in verse 3 through 4, he says his, meaning God's divine power, has granted to all to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious 
and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I mean, let those, those three things sink in. His divine power has granted to us all things for life and godliness. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He has said we, the church, has become partakers of the divine nature. This is what it means to be called and to be the elect of God. Peter is making a statement of condition about the church. He's making a statement of circumstances about the church. And next, he is going to be confirming that statement for us. And what he's going to be telling us is that true faith grows. True faith produces fruit. He is going to confirm our calling and election in verses 5 through 11. And there's some challenging words in here. He says to, to supplement or supply your faith with. And then he goes on with the list. Let me read that. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that one phrase right there. They keep, it keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that negatively, but positively he says the knowledge of God enables us to be both effective, that's in gospel ministry, and fruitful in our lives. That is a, that is a promise. So he goes on, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Confirm your calling. Supplement or supply to your faith. As they say, the proof is in the pudding of what you believe. What do we believe? Back to three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's not that we show up and we supply out of our own goodness and our own abilities. That's what Peter tried to do in the garden. All that bluster, all that blather. I will never fail you. I'm the guy. I'm the leader. Do first, think later. 
but he's teaching us something else. He's telling us that we have divine power, we have God's promises, we have his divine nature. So he's telling us to supply these qualities, supply these qualities that God is empowering us with. Add these to your walk. Let it show in your life virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. This made me think of, for any of you guys that uh, or gals that plug around spreadsheets, I used to produce catalogs, and uh, after a time when we were trying to automate things, um, we used databases. Um, database queries or requests for information, not to get too deep in the weeds, but basically what it meant was you could plug in a skew or a code and up would pop the appropriate picture. And it was something that should fit inside the motorcycle catalog that was appropriate. So I would plug in a number and you know, if a big leather seat for a Harley showed up, you knew it was the right thing. If a kitten shows up there, it's really, something's wrong. But maybe another illustration is helpful. I think of the Lord giving us all these things, divine power, great promises, divine nature, and all that is is in this bowl that, we're, that we are holding. We possess it. There's a ladle in that bowl, and as we walk through the street, we dip that ladle in, and we pour out virtue, knowledge, self-control. It's not of ourselves. This is, this is of God, but we lean in to the work that he gives us. And then he goes on in verses 12 through 15... And this is where we're picking up with some new text. And he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What are these qualities? These are the qualities he's talking about supplying to our faith, supplementing to a faith. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Three times in three verses, Peter uses the word remind. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. I will make every effort so that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Why is this so important? Well, he says so if we jumped back to verse eight, 
when he says, so that we can be effective and fruitful. But he also says in verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is, this is the heart of Peter's experience. And this is the heart of Peter's desire. And this is the heart of Jesus' command to Peter to turn and strengthen the brethren. Peter is desiring to strengthen us. He is desiring that we do not fall. Well, this is the second time that, um, I'm sorry, later on he's going to emphasize this in chapter 3. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both. I am stirring you up by way of sincere stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Well, from this statement, two of Peter's comments regarding these reminders are somewhat surprising. He says in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth. So what's the problem? Sounds like the church is on good footing. They know the truth. They're established in the truth. Why all the fuss? The word established is helpful in understanding why. It means to turn resolutely in a certain direction or be steadfastly set or strengthened. You can think of a ship set on a fixed course. So Peter is saying you are established in the truth. You are fixed in the truth. When we get on that boat, start our Christian walk, the sun is in our face, the wind is at our back, and what happens? The storms of life come along. They start battering that boat. Yes, we are established in the truth, but we have to continue in the truth. Think of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Think of Peter's fall. His confidence really was built in the belief there were no crises ahead. There was no tragedy that was going to happen. What do we do when calamity strikes? It is so easy to, to look at Peter's reactions and subconsciously think, I, I, I don't think I would. I don't think I, I would deny Jesus. Think of that night, all the expectations, things would go well, life is great. Think of how we look at our own lives. We think everything is going to progress at a wonderful step. And then we're challenged 
by the realities of a fallen world. Are we going to follow Jesus at that moment? Or are we going to deny him? Are we going to fall away? You know, I can't help but be struck by several um, news headlines. And, you know, you never hear about pastors in the news unless they've either cheated with someone or they're denying Christ. The simple country preacher that just proclaims the truth, that'll, that'll never make the headlines, will it? But there were several very prominent pastors this year that not just turned towards heresy, but literally denying Christ and the entirety of the gospel. And it's sobering. It's sobering. Now, we, we stand on the promise that Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, none will I lose. But just as Peter is talking about supplying your faith with the reality of action, there is a point between putting our faith in Christ and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And between those two points, there is challenges. And Peter knows that there's challenges. And if you know this period of time, this is, this is literally a few years before Jerusalem is destroyed, the church is scattered, and persecution ramps up. And Peter is, again, fixed on equipping and strengthening the church. There are real challenges ahead. Well, this word, and I gave this illustration of this ship sailing in calm waters and then stormy waters. The word to establish, it's also an architectural term, so you can think about establishing a foundation, a fixed foundation. Luke is so helpful. It, it is amazing how these parables of Jesus just weave together to form this fixed and certain truth. Luke 6, 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not be shaken because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Peter reminds us, as we remember these qualities and apply them, we are established on a foundation that will never be moved. 
and it is the foundation we can never move from. There is nothing else. This is what God has provided us, his word and his spirit and his promises. Well, why else does Peter remind us? He reminds us because his time is limited. He says in verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. You know, Peter reminds us, all of us, we only have so much time in this life. Peter was determined with the days and the hours that he had left that he was going to remind the church. He was going to remind the church. He would not be able to do that afterwards. God didn't intend that he would do that afterwards. We only have so much time in our own lives. We really do. It's, it's, and events will bring that sharp, sharply into focus. If you, were, if you were dying tomorrow or next week, what would you say to your spouse? What would you say to your kids? What would you say to your neighbor? How would you use that time? Peter will soon be dead. Peter has finished well. What are we left with that we would finish well? Well, Peter goes on in this effort to strengthen and encourage the church by telling us of the authority over our calling and election. Very interesting verses that follow in 16 to 21. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is referring back to uh, the, the time um, when Jesus led the two disciples up onto the mount and, and they saw Jesus transformed. They saw him in his post-resurrection glory prior to the resurrection. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced 
by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, after all this instruction, Peter says, we're not telling you a myth. How do we know it's not a myth? We have eyewitnesses. Now, I, I, I do not have time to go into the thousands of volumes on apologetics and the tens of thousands of proofs and evidences of the resurrection alone. But I did come across a quote the other day that I thought uh, spoke well or, or, or was an effective message, especially to our modern ears today. I don't know if you remember Chuck Colson. Does anybody remember that name? Watergate, maybe? Nixon? I think he was chief of staff, something like that. But in that whole debacle, Chuck Colson, I think, was the only guy that actually went to prison. And there, this Peter-esque kind of guy, full of bluster, a, a retired Marine, and confident in his path and purpose, certain of his self-righteousness, finds himself a criminal in prison. And he also finds Christ and goes on to found um, an incredible prison ministry and an unbelievable personal testimony himself. But he says this regarding the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. So we have Peter's eyewitness testimony, not just of that moment, but that's indicative of three years with Jesus through all the miracles, through all the changed lives, through all the filled prophecy. And we haven't even touched on the Old Testament and all of those um, prophets. But even with all that, Peter goes on to say, after having seen this vision or seen this scene and heard the voice from heaven, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, more fully confirmed, even than a vision, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have a firm foundation to stand on. We have God's word. So, I think with Peter, we have to ask ourselves, do I know these qualities Peter is speaking of? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Am I established in the truth? Am I standing solely on the word of God? We have to simply look back to verse 3 and 4 and remember. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter desired that the church would be strengthened and it would be established. And 2,000 years later, the church stands and the gates of hell have not set against it. Isn't that great? Church, supply virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. You notice what it doesn't say? Supply perfection. It isn't what God's asking. God is asking us to believe what he has supplied and to lean in, lean into the work. And he will supply Amen. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for seeing how you carried 12 men in their weakness and frailty through to the end. All 12 finished well. They finished well through the most difficult and challenging circumstances. And they did so because of the truth. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. And Father, you have told us that we can walk in that same resurrection power. Father, increase our faith. You have given us all we need. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.